Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Charles Kessler. He's the editor of the Claremont Review of Books. Uh, he is uh, the Dengler Dykema. Charles, you'll have to tell me if I pronounced that correctly. The Dengler <laughs> That's almost correct. <laughs> Distinguished <laughs> professor of government at Claremont McKenna College. He's the author of I Am the Change. Barack Obama and the Crisis of Liberalism. He co-edited with William F. Buckley, Keeping the Tablets, Modern American Conservative Thought. He has a new book out with Encounter Books entitled Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. Welcome, Professor Editor Kessler. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Uh, delighted to be here. I have to issue first a correction. You say crisis of the two constitutions. Now, I took civics in, in 11th grade, and there's only one constitution. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us what the, what, what the two constitutions are? The problem is you, uh, it's very difficult to have two constitutions in one nation. <laughs> and uh, that is, uh, unfortunately, increasingly what's, I think, happening in American politics. And the best way to understand what's happening in American politics it used to be said, the two constitutions I'm talking about are the, the what I call the Founders Constitution. That is the, the one that was uh, written in 1787 and ratified in 1788, but of course amended many times after that. But, but basically the one that is grounded in the political theory of the Federalist Papers and the Declaration of Independence, broadly speaking. And then the second constitution is the liberals constitution or the progressive constitution, which is called often by them the living constitution. And the living constitution has been around for about a hundred years in our politics, a little bit more than that maybe now. But it was always or frequently sold as not an alternative to the original constitution, but rather just a, a, a more expansive way of interpreting it, a more up-to-date, modern spirit of interpretation. And for a long time, there was some truth to that account, and it was the kind of leading edge of the public discussion of the living constitution for several generations, I say until the 60s, broadly speaking. But it has become increasingly clear and I maintain if you actually go back and read the sort of um, political science and history writings out of which the, the whole notion of a living constitution arose, it's pretty clear that it is now really an alternative, a competitor to the original constitution, not just a different way of interpreting it. And 
to a certain extent, it was always meant to be that. It was meant to supplant the original Constitution gradually in an evolutionary way. And you could see this, I argue, in Woodrow Wilson and Herbert Crowley and all the leading intellectuals of 100 years ago in the progressive movement. You open with, just in your little preface, uh, current discussions of some of the issues such as the systemic racism issue, the cold civil war that Angelo Cotevilla described. But um, maybe we'll jump right to the the introduction, sort of the historical placement of the Constitution. You have a full section on the founders and the classics. Uh, what what was their relationship to the classics? There are sort of two schools of thought about that that prevail these days. One of them is that the the Constitution and the founding in general was a kind of rebellion against classical wisdom, against classical political wisdom in particular, and that the new Constitution, our Constitution, steered by uh, the star of modern reason, by John Locke and uh, Baron Montesquieu and Hobbes and many other Enlightenment figures uh, uh, steered exclusively or almost exclusively by those uh, new stars in the uh, in the sky, and then there's the other view, which is not as popular as it was, but was very big in the late '60s, '70s, '80s, and had a lot of influence on law schools, including on, I think, uh, in particular Harvard Law School when Barack Obama was there mm-hmm. as a uh, young man, as a law student in the uh, early 80s, I guess, or late 70s, early 80s. And this is the so-called Republican interpretation, which maintains that rather than being modern and based in the Enlightenment, it actually is a backward-looking, the American Revolution was a backward-looking phenomenon, going all the way back to Roman Republicanism, and that it was all about the common good. And then a terrible thing happened so to speak, which is that the Constitution coming after the Declaration and the American Revolution was a kind of counter-revolution against that classicism and that spirit of solidarity, of community, to put a word on it, of socialism. And this, unfortunately, from most of these historians' point of view, I'm talking about now Gordon Wood and J.G.A. Pocock, uh, among others. Unfortunately, the Constitution was Again, the Lockean modern Enlightenment uh, doctrine, not the the old-fashioned and closer to modern socialism interpretation that it's one for all and all for one. And this is the sort of the tragedy of the American Revolution. We've been either going downhill ever since into greater and greater capitalism and individualism, or we have been alternating between periods of greater uh, communitarianism and lesser communitarianism. Why is the notion of prudence so important in these discussions? I make a, a lot of it, as did the founders, I allege. And that's because it opens up a different way of thinking about politics in general and the American founding in particular. Prudence means that there's a kind of practical wisdom involved in politics. And the politics is not simply derivative from uh, either from, uh, as Marxists might say, the class structure of a country, or as a lot of uh, modern day intellectuals and historians say, it's not simply derivative from the leading ideas of the age or the the, the big books 
the big notions, the cultural uh, leading ideas into which practical men are sort of enslaved. Prudence means that there are principles of political rights and moral rights, and those principles are accessible, uh, not always with the same ease, but accessible in, in any time because they're based not on history or on development, but on nature or nature's God, Um, but that the political problem is always the same, which is how to translate what is right into what shall we do now and what can be done now, what's the best thing to do under the circumstances. And so prudence and sort of philosophical principle in that sense go together, and you can't reduce, I think, decent human politics to either. Because you can have the right principles and, the, and you know, erroneous practice, which can ruin you. You can have bad principles, you know, and a bad practice. There are, there are several combinations. But for a good country, for a good uh, polity, you need both good principles and sound, wise practice. Prudence certainly doesn't go with the progressive temperament, doesn't? Those guys are daring. Yes, that's right. The audacity of hope. <laughs> there you go. To coin a phrase. I mean, audacity is one of those funny words that um, can mean either courage or a certain kind of boldness, or it can mean an excess, you know, of courage or recklessness. And I think in Barack Obama, it's, you know, more the latter. I agree. You turn in your next question to relativism, and you you pose it in, in a classroom context. What happens when you ask your students about the Declaration of Independence, that they're pretty good on, on stating what it says, but when you ask them the question, is this true? What happens? <laughs> well, students have been trained to be modest in an epistemological sense. And so typically, they will say either true, you know, <laughs> what do you mean exactly by that? Is anything true? Or they will say, a branch of the same idea, really, which is, well, the people who wrote it, like Thomas Jefferson, thought it was true. And in the 18th century, that's, you know, as good as truth. Who knows what's true, but we know that they thought it was true. But that their thoughts, unfortunately, are bound by the uh, spirit of their age. And the, they, they didn't know their own intellectual limitations, didn't even suspect their own intellectual limitations, because they thought that when they talked about nature, human nature, that there's a difference between human beings and horses, and that that difference, visible and intelligible to ordinary human beings, has some moral and political significance. They really thought, they really believed that. (laughs) They didn't understand that those were just, they were just mouthing sort of enlightenment pieties of various Kinds and that there is no, so to speak, there's no truth in it. And they certainly believed it was true, but it's no more scientific or no more real than, you know, 18th century dentistry. They thought that was pretty advanced too, but no one in their right mind would go back to an 18th century dentist. And why should we go back to 18th century political notions? I think that's a far-reaching point that you just made, and it, it does seem the timidity of, of students to take that step, right, to, to, to determine, or to, just to offer an answer of, of truth. Um, 
It's unfortunate, though, that the, uh, but it's common that that kind of uh, timidity, which you might be able to work with and to open them dialectically to deeper and better thoughts about such things, it often goes together with a certain kind of uh, arrogance. Uh, yeah, a sort of politically correct arrogance. I mean, and so it, this isn't the kid's fault because they've learned this. They've been taught this in high school and before, that there are no truths, but that racism is bad uh, and genocide is bad and polluting the environment is extremely bad. You know, at the same time, they hold these two contradictory notions that they know what they really do have a very perfervid sense of what is right and wrong, that, you know, that racial prejudice is just horrible and wrong. And yet at the same time, they can say, oh, well, you know, these are these are value judgments. We don't know what truth is. And these are only our you know, this is what what passes for truth with us. Two questions about the Federalist papers. Uh, one, why did they choose the name Publius? We know this from a, a letter much later by James Madison. They chose the name Publius from, you know, there, there are <laughs> hundreds of Publii in Roman history because those poor Latins, they only <laughs> had about 15 first names. You know? So if you're not a Marcus or a Gaius, you're a Publius or a Lucius or something. But the Publius they had in mind is Publius Valerius, who's one of the founders of the Roman Republic. He was one of the early consuls, uh, and he was the sort of the ally of Marcus Brutus Junius, who was the more famous founder of the Republic, who threw out the last Tarquin king and ended the Roman, Rome's days as a monarchy. And this guy, uh, the Roman Publius, the model for the American Publius, is very interesting because he stuck around for a while. And in a way, he sort of refounded the Roman Republic very early in its history. He gave it a better, more solid basis. He stabilized it. He lowered taxes. He made, he made it more democratic in certain ways and more aristocratic in other ways. But the combination was a good one. It was a moderate one, and it made it a lasting regime that was, was much more just than it would have been if uh, either the more democratic or the more aristocratic factions had sort of won out on their own. And so I think our American Publius is meant to remind Americans that uh, as good as the founding was in 1776 and in the state constitutions that were made in the uh, late 1770s and early 1780s, we had room to improve and we needed to improve that the Articles of Confederation, the Union, was in fact enfeebled and likely to fail unless we did something profound to reform it. And that's what the what we now call the U.S. Constitution is all about. Why is Federalist 10 so important? I'm glad you asked me that question, Mark. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it is, it's, uh, no one really thought it was that important in the 19th century. Tocqueville, all kinds of very smart people. James Bryce wrote uh, also a massive two-volume, highly intelligent work on American politics. Never mentioned it. But it was discovered in the early 20th century, and it became, through a couple of permutations, sort of the, it's regarded as the central number of the Federalists, the most single most important paper. I dispute that. I, I think it is one of the most important papers, but 
my view of the Federalist is you have to read it as a book. And every part in it has a role to play in the book's argument, but you have to sort of connect the dots. You can't simply seize on one paper or one argument and take it as the final word of the three men who are writing under that Publius pseudonym. And I think, rightly understood, the Federalist 10 still can tell you a lot. But if I can just very briefly characterize the, the game of interpretation in the last century. So the first scholar to really hang his interpretation on Federalist 10 was Charles Beard, one of the most famous progressive historians, who in 1913 wrote a famous book called An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution. And number 10, he took as a, as a candid statement of economic determinism, because his interpretation was basically a form of economic determinism. His argument was the founders, whatever the uh, highfalutin rhetoric they might have engaged in, were practical democratic politicians, and as such, they followed the money. And they followed the interests of their m most numerous and powerful constituents and, and their, their uh, economic and or uh, financial interests. And so it was really a case of the few versus the many in, the, um, in American politics back then as, as today. And the fact was the Constitution, according to Beard, represented a victory of the few over the many a victory of the rich, the property owners, over the poorer people who had sort of made the revolution, you know, in the preceding decade. And then, by a strange twist of fate, that interpretation, which first put Federalist 10, so to speak, on the map, was twisted by other historians and political scientists into the pluralist interpretation. And that really commanded the heights of American um, of the American Academy from the say the 1950s on, and still does in a way. And that interpretation simply says Federalist Ten reveals that America is a regime of interest group liberalism. Federalist Ten is about multiplying the number of factions in a large union. The more factions, the merrier. More factions mean you prevent one massive monolithic faction uh, of the majority from forming, and thus you solve the major problem of democratic or republican politics, majority tyranny. You avoid majority tyranny by having a multiplicity of little tyrants, each one greedily pursuing his own or, or its own interest. Um, and in a way, that's where the interpretation of American politics, the mainstream interpretation is still somewhere on those pluralist grounds. I think that that's a, a rather simple and, and misleading interpretation because Madison or Publius never talks about a multiplicity of factions. He talks about a multiplicity of interests. And that's perhaps something very different. Uh, a faction, as he defines it, is an immoral group that is either seeking its own profit at the expense of the country, or it's dedicated to exploiting the rights of other, when denying the rights of other uh, individuals, both of which are very bad things. And I think that's a misreading of Madison. And when you read 
10 as I do in the context of the whole argument. I think number 10 is sort of about teaching both the few and the many to be Americans, to understand themselves as common citizens, you know, as part of a, of, of a whole, sharing a common good, and not being primarily rich or poor, few or many. And it, I, I read it as, in a way, laying a kind of civic groundwork for, you know, what a lot of people have called the civil religion or the, the um, essential moral infrastructure um, of American democracy. One element in that, that sort of moral, moral infrastructure, you single out really isn't a matter of ideas or, or traditions, but you, you talk a lot about the person of George Washington, the character of George Washington. Why, why is he crucial to our understanding of the founding? I think he um, corrects a, a number of misunderstandings of the founding, and he lets us see a little bit of what the, the doctrines of the founding, because he was as, you know, as passionate a, a believer in the principles of the Declaration of Independence as you would ever find, and also, of course, one of the leading advocates of the new Constitution. It lets you see what those principles, when they're put into a human soul and the soul into a body, what they look like. Not in every case, of course, but it shows you what the principles, the human beings who sort of are dedicated to those principles are capable of at their best. And it uh, it humanizes what are otherwise in some ways abstract doctrines or mechanical seeming institutions in the, the documents. Most of the time when we, especially political scientists, study the founding or teach it in civics courses and things, uh, we tend to take the shortcut of, of reading all these interesting documents, but paying very little attention to the drama of the revolution and the founding um, and paying um, very little attention to the, the people, to the, to the statesmen who actually brought it about. And, you know, with George Washington, we've got a world-class statesman. I mean, there are very few statesmen in any country at any time who come close to measuring up to him. Indeed. When you turn to another statesman, when you turn to Lincoln, uh, one thing you single out is his, and others, single out his magnanimity. Uh, what was so important about that particular virtue with Lincoln? It's not a virtue that I think he ever claimed. <laughs> I don't know that he ever... <laughs> but um, it's, you know, the, the virtue itself, great soulness, uh, literally, is something that Aristotle first put the finger on as sort of the key statesman's virtue. The, the height of individual political excellence is, is knowing, is combining goodness and greatness. You have to have both. You have to have the virtues, that's the goodness part, but somehow in a kind of splendid way, larger than the average human is capable of, but that's the greatness part. It's not, a, it's not simply a great man theory of history kind of thing, because most of the great men in history are not particularly good. <laughs> I, mean, many, I mean, if you think of, you know, Caesar or, or even Alexander or Napoleon, these are great men, but not particularly good men and destroyers of republics every one of them. And the, Lincoln is sort of the antithesis of that. He is 
a, a good man who reveals, especially, of course, during the, the terrible times of the Civil War, the greatness in his soul, the heights uh, of statesmanship that he was able to, to exhibit and to, uh, to dwell at, in a way. And so, again, this is uh, like Washington, who's another one of these great and good men. They, t- they I think, uh, teach us Americans not to be so down on ourselves and down on Republican government. I mean, there are, you know, throughout the last couple of hundred years, there's been a strain of, of a kind of conservative thought that has been very dismissive of American republicanism as, as low uh, and not very solid and ignoble and common. And of course, there's a lot that is common uh, in a Republican form of government. The common man, as Lincoln emphasized, is the, is the warp and woof of republicanism. But at the same time, one of the things about America is um, our common men can be uncommonly good sometimes. And especially you see this in the most, you know, excellent examples like Lincoln and Washington. And I think that, you know, we don't want to go all Henry Adams <laughs> on on ourselves and on America. Smart, of course, as, uh, and brilliant as Henry Adams was in a way. But he, his, uh, his view of America, I think, was unbalanced. And some acquaintance with the the the, the lives and the um, achievements of men like Washington and Lincoln helped to balance that kind of um, conservative impatience with Democrats. There's much much more uh, in the book. With there there are sections on religious diversity, religious pluralism. Uh, you move up into the old new left and the new new left, but. In our land, the, the, you have the Reagan uh, revolution, uh, however unfinished it was, as you say. Uh, but I, I, in, our last, in our last couple of minutes, Charles, I wanted to turn to what you say near the end about conservatism. You say that conservatism in America has a perennial problem, and that is it, it has no sense of final mission, no sense of ultimate goals. It opposes the left, but when it wins, then what? As I have said um many times, conservatism presupposes that there's something worth conserving. But what is it that is worth conserving? And strangely, in the especially modern conservatism in the, in the sort of uh, from the mid-50s and the 20th century on, has wrestled with that question without coming to much of a conclusion. Uh, conservatives have always been more sure of what they were against than what they were for. And as long as the as you had a uh, an external adversary and a deadly one like communism and especially the Soviet Union, that uh, common uh, alliance against a common enemy supplied most of your needs. But when communism disappeared as a internal and external threat. Conservatism was seized not by triumphal celebration, but really by a kind of a dismay and uh, a dilemma because it didn't know what to do anymore. What was it going to? It knew what it was against, but what it was against had faded from the scene. Um, liber- domestic liberalism was still here, but didn't look nearly as threatening once the international equivalent or, or ancillary of it was gone. So what are we supposed to be conserving now? 
And this has been, among other things, I think the cause of a lot of the um, drift in the conservative movement in the past generation. We assumed that the, the end of history, to use Fukuyama's version of winning the Cold War, we assumed that the end of history would make life easy and fulfilling and would spare us a lot of grief and uh, uncertainty. And I think it's quite the opposite, really. Um, conservatism has been in a kind of low boiling crisis ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And you see that, you've seen that, I think, because of the many iterations of conservatism, the many varieties that we've seen in just the last generation. I mean, there's been, you know, national greatness, conservatism, civil society, conservatism, all sorts. Well, I was going to say in, in your subtitle, that final segment, recovery of American greatness, is that, is that what the mission should be? Yes, I think so. Uh, well, I think it, um, it requires you, of course, to ask, what is American greatness? And my answer is, it really uh, it's, it stems from the founders' the principles and their actions. Um, we can repair to their principles, but the actions have to be our own. And we have to decide, we have to figure out in a sort of statesmanlike way what is to be done to uh, recover the freedoms uh, and the, the virtues of American life um, at its height. And that means resisting uh, most of the formulas of liberalism, which, as we were saying, has been in rebellion, often open rebellion, against the Founders' Constitution for more than a hundred years. And I think that gives us a, a sense of what to be for, as well as what to be against. The book is Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. It's out with Encounter Books. Thank you, Professor Kessler. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.